All right, so if you are just hopping in for the first time this morning or been with us for the last few months, you know we've been taking better part of this year to study the book of Acts together. Uh, Acts is a book, beginning parts of the New Testament. It's written by a man named Luke, primarily to a man named Theophilus. And what Luke's doing is trying to give Theophilus confidence in what he's already heard about how God is fulfilling his plans to renew cultures and places and lives through Jesus Christ. And the passage that we're going to look at this morning, Jesus goes on trial. So for a series starting back in chapter 21, the Apostle Paul is charged and brought before a series of courts because of something that he claims to have seen. And so over four separate occasions, Paul is brought before the Roman officials, and he's charged with anarchy. He's brought before the religious officials. He's charged with blasphemy. Now, what is so unnerving about what Paul's going around telling people he's seen? Well, Paul is claiming that he has finally seen the hope of Israel, the Bible, and of you and me here today. In other words, what Paul is claiming, if it is true, is life-changing. You see, you and me are irreducible, at our most basic sense, hope-based creatures. One of the most common needs that you and I have in common is this need for some sort of hope, either in ourselves or something else in this world, to combat what one author describes as the lurking suspicion that all our getting and spending amounts to nothing more than fidgeting while we wait for death. In other words, we can't get around this. You and me are hope-based creatures, even when we feel hopeless. And the charge that Paul has been brought up on is about preaching, about the resurrection of the dead, as the hope of Israel, the hope of the Bible, the hope of all of humanity. And over four trials that ratchet up in intensity, he gets passed around kind of the ancient court system until he arrives at the highest place he could in his region. After his trial was heard by this Roman official named Festus, Paul's now going to have his case heard by the Jewish king of this region, a man named Herod Agrippa. And as Luke retells all of this, you can feel the intensity of the moment just ratcheting up. In verse 25, he says, Herod Agrippa arrives into the city with great pomp and ceremony, and he comes into this courtroom with all of the important people in the city. The late Anglican minister John Stott describes what Paul is about to face this way. He says, the combined might of Jerusalem and Rome was overwhelming. If a solitary dissident like Paul were to set himself against them, the outcome would be inevitable. His chances of survival, Stott says, would resemble those of a butterfly before a steamroller. He would be crushed, utterly obliterated from the face of the earth. Problem is, it's not just Paul who's on trial. It's ultimately the hope Paul is claiming to have seen that's on trial. And so the two judges, Festus and Agrippa, 
in the midst of this crowd in the courtroom, summon the defendant, Paul, who after giving this opening statement about his life, his former life, persecuting Christians, read with me in chapter 26, starting in verse 12, his defense that he gives for the hope that he's seen. He tells Agrippa, on one of these journeys, I was going to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priest. About noon, King Agrippa, I was on the road. I saw a light from heaven, brighter than the sun, blazing around me and my companions. We fell to the ground, and I heard a voice saying to me in Aramaic, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? It's hard for you to kick against the goads. Then I asked, who are you, Lord? I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, the Lord replied. Now get up, stand on your feet. I've appeared to you to appoint you as a servant and as a witness of what you have seen and will see of me. I will rescue you from your own people and from the Gentiles. I am sending you to them to open their eyes, to turn them from darkness to light, from the power of Satan to God, so that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. So then, King Agrippa, Paul says, I wasn't disobedient to the vision from heaven, first to those in Damascus, then to those in Jerusalem, and all of Judea, and then to the Gentiles, I preached that they should repent, that they should turn to God and demonstrate their repentance by their deeds. That is why some of the Jews seized me in the temple courts and are trying to kill me. But God has helped me to this very day, so here I stand and testify to small and great alike, I am saying nothing beyond what the prophets and Moses said would happen, that the Messiah would suffer and as the first to rise from the dead would bring the message of light to his own people and to the Gentiles. At this point, Festus interrupted Paul's defense. He says, you're out of your mind, Paul, he shouted. Your great learning, it's driving you insane. I'm not insane, most excellent Festus, Paul replied. What I'm saying is true and reasonable. The king is familiar with these things. I can speak freely to him. I am convinced that none of this has escaped his notice because it wasn't done in a corner. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know you do. Then Agrippa said to Paul, do you think that in such a short time you can persuade me to be a Christian? Paul replied, Short time or long, I pray to God that not only you, but all who are listening to me may become as what I am, except for these chains. The king rose, and with him the governor and Bernice, and those sitting with them. After they had left the room, they began saying to one another, this man has done nothing that deserves death or imprisonment. And then Agrippa says to Festus, this man could have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar. Four things in this trial that we need to see. If we want to see the hope of Christianity, Paul and ultimately Luke is drawing out for us here. The testimony, the evidence, the objection, and the verdict. First, the testimony. And to make sense of Paul's testimony here, we need to understand a little bit of the context of Paul's story that he mentions just before this in the opening statement because it's going to help us make sense of all of this here. 
Uh, Alistair McIntyre, who's a philosophy professor at the University of Notre Dame, um, he describes the need to understand context just in our lives this way. He says, imagine for a second, you're sitting on a park bench. Maybe it's a Saturday afternoon, you are down at Central Park, you're on a park bench there, and someone walks up to you. Let's just say it's me. And I sit down next to you, and I look at you, and without prompting, I just say to you, the name of the common wild duck is Hysteronicus, Hysteronicus, Hysteronicus. And then sit in silence. Now, for you to understand what's going on here, a few thoughts might be running through your head. You might think like, okay, Eric has been sitting in on a high school biology class. We need to help this guy find a new hobby. Um, maybe Eric is secretly trying to audition for my Thursday night trivia team. Uh, or, you know what? He's finally lost it. Like, it was only a matter of time. He's from upstate New York. The sun never comes out there. He was not built or designed for the heat and intensity of what it's like to live here in Florida. And it finally just ate the poor guy up. Either way, you would need some sort of context, some sort of wider narrative to put this in to make sense of what's going on. And McIntyre relates this to how we understand our lives. He says, you and I need some sort of bigger narrative, some sort of wider context for our lives to understand and make sense of them. And in the verses just before the ones we read, Paul explains the wider story of his life. Starting in verse 4, he explains to Agrippa about his childhood growing up in Jerusalem, about how he joined the strictest sect that he could in the Jewish faith, the Pharisees, and how even within that, he was one of the most zealous Pharisees that there was, that Paul hated Christians, that as he says, he literally was obsessed with going to all these different cities, tracking them down and persecuting them. And this is incredibly important for understanding Paul's verses that we just read here. Because here's the thing, the charge the Jewish people had ultimately brought Paul up on was that the message that he was preaching about this hope he's found had made him an unfaithful Israelite. And so Paul starts off by explaining to the judge, Agrippa here, that no, 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 that's not the case at all. That I am just, if not more, a zealous and faithful Israelite finding, trying to find the hope for God's people that he has promised for centuries. And so with this kind of wider story and picture, we can now start to look at Paul's testimony that he gives in this trial. And in verse 4, or sorry, verse 12, Paul says, while he was on one of these journeys, as a faithful Israelite persecuting Christians, he collides with the risen Jesus in one of the most violent ways possible. And in verse 14, it says, he fell to the ground when he heard this voice, this blinding light and voice saying to him in Aramaic, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Don't you know it's hard for you to kick against the goads? And there's something really interesting happening here. Luke, three times in the book of Acts, retells the conversion story of Paul. This is the only place, though, where this line from Jesus that it's hard for you to kick against the goads is included. What does it mean? Well, a goad was a sharp, pointy stick that you would use to kind of like herd animals along. And what Paul seems to be implying here is that 
possibly far from the way we think of it, of this Damascus, Damascus Road experience where suddenly it all dawned him at once. Actually, the truth about the risen Jesus had been slowly poking at Paul's conscience for some time until it finally just burst into full realization here. And Paul says in verse 15, then I asked, who are you, Lord? I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, the Lord replied. Now get up, stand on your feet. I have appeared to you to appoint you as a servant and as a witness of what you have seen and will see of me. And it's at this point that Paul, Paul realizes that the hope of God's people, the hope he's been looking for his entire life is right here before him in the resurrected Jesus, who now, more importantly, is sending Paul to tell the Jewish people and everyone else about this hope. So let me ask you, what's the hope that you're looking for this morning? You see, just like Paul tells uh, Agrippa in his testimony at this trial, you and me, we all have some sort of bigger story that we use to make sense of our individual lives. All right, that might be something like the role you played in the family growing up. Uh, it might be something like the expectations people have put on your future. Maybe the title that you have at work or maybe countless other things. Either way, all of these wider stories are trying to help us make sense of our lives. And it's through them that we latch on to some sense of hope at the end of them. That all of our spending and getting, basically what you and me do here in this life, has got to be something more than just fidgeting as we wait for death. And what Paul is about to show us is that the hope that he's been sent to preach isn't just the hope of Israel, it's the hope of all humanity. First, the testimony, now the evidence. In verse 23, Paul lays out the evidence that he has for this hope before King Agrippa. He says, I am saying nothing beyond what the prophets and Moses said would happen, that the Messiah would, Messiah would suffer and as the first to rise from the dead would bring the message of light to his own people and to all the Gentiles. And it's in these words here that Paul finally states what is just so controversial about this message that he's preaching that people want to kill him for it. And he's been hinting at it all along. You see, all throughout these trials, as Paul has just been kind of bounced from one court to another, he's been simply stating that all he's doing is preaching this message about the resurrection of the dead, which is something that really most Jewish people at that time should have been able to get on board with. You see, in the Old Testament, uh, God promises to his people that there will be this future time, at the end of time, when God would fulfill all of his covenantal blessings to his people. All right, one of the passages that describes this is Ezekiel 37, where Paul says, or sorry, where the prophet Ezekiel says that in this future time, at the end of time, God will restore his people. He will forgive them of their sins. He'll transform them on the inside to love and obey God. He'll unite them together in this new sense of belonging and that he will live with them forever. And the sign that this age has come is that the dead will come to life. That resurrection would be the sign that this 
hope has finally come that God is fulfilling all of his blessings to his people. In a passage like Ezekiel 37, it's metaphorical. But in other places, like in Daniel chapter 12, it's literal. And what Paul and Luke are saying here in verse 23 is that all of that is happening now. That Jesus is the Messiah who suffered and died and is, the, and is the first now to rise from the dead. That Jesus' resurrection is the sign that God's future end-of-time blessings of forgiveness, transformation, belonging, and life with God are available now. And not just to the Jewish people, but to all peoples. You see, this is why the Jews were ultimately trying to kill Paul. It's because Paul was saying that these future blessings that are being fulfilled and on offer now through faith in Jesus, anyone can get in on this. But as he says in verse 23, Jesus has come to bring this message of light to his own people and to the Gentiles. In other words, that the hope of the resurrection of Jesus as the first from the dead, it's not just the hope of Israel, it's not just the hope of the Bible, it is the hope all of humanity. If you're a Christian here this morning, this is your greatest hope. Because in the resurrection of Jesus, as the first from the dead, you have this sign that you can now look to in your deepest moments of despair, in your most frustrating stages in life, in your most shame-inducing, doubt-producing moments of sin, that the blessings God promises people for centuries have now begun and are yours through faith in the risen Jesus, the first to rise from the dead as the sign that this age of God's blessings are breaking into your life right now. And if you're not a Christian here today, this resurrection hope is the hope that you want too. Isn't it? You see, we all have this bigger narrative that makes sense of our lives and gives us a sense of hope. And whether we realize it or not, we all want that bigger story to have some sort of transcendence in it, to have something that's outside of us, something that's bigger than us that can help us make sense of it. Uh, here's a picture of what this could look like. My wife and I were watching the show, This Is Us, a couple weeks ago, and uh, one of the characters in this show, Kate, has a baby who's born 12 weeks premature. The baby is on breathing tubes, it's suffering, it's not doing well, and there's this point where she is sitting there looking at the baby in the incubator, and she prays. And now, I've watched every episode of This Is Us, and consequently, eaten lots of Talenti ice cream and cried with my wife on our couch together. And I can tell you, I can't think of a moment where I've seen a character in this show pray. And here she is looking at her suffering, struggling baby, and she prays to her deceased father. Why? Because in the moment, the crisis of the moment, her character realizes that she needs a hope in something that is bigger and greater and farther outside of her than she can imagine. But what she doesn't realize is, well, her deceased father can't give any hope to her and her baby in that moment. Jesus 
who's not only experienced death, but defeated it, can give her a sense of hope. Real hope. And what Paul shows Agrippa and you and me in the evidence that he pulls out right from God's word is that the resurrection of Christ is the hope of humanity. It is the sign that God's future end-of-time blessings are available now, and anyone can get in on it. The testimony, the evidence, now the objection. First, we see a rational objection. In verse 24, Luke says, at this point, Festus interrupts Paul in his defense, and he says, you're out of your mind, Paul, he shouted. You're great learning. It's driving you insane. Festus cuts Paul off right when he is at the peak of his defense. And at the core of Festus' objection here is that the resurrection, rationally, logically, it just doesn't add up. It can't make sense. There's no way it can. But maybe you have similar rational objections to the resurrection. A lot of us here today would have some sort of logical objection to the resurrection where we think it just doesn't add up. It doesn't make sense. There's no way it can. And there's something really interesting that we see in Festus here that I think can talk to our objections today. You see, one of the common things that we think today is, well, of course, these ancient people 2,000 years ago, believed that a man claiming to be God rose from the dead. I mean, you got to remember, Eric, these were people who thought that there were hundreds, if not thousands of gods who had inhabited every little corner of our world. This wasn't that big of a leap for them, right? These people probably would believe anything. But do you see what's happening here? Festus the Roman polytheistic man who supposedly should be able to believe anything says, wait, wait, a man claiming to be God rising from the dead. No way, I'm not buying this for a second. See, the reality is ancient people, for different reasons than us, had just as many objections to the resurrection that we do today. But what I'm more concerned with is this. What do you do in light of your rational objections? You see, we're all hope-based creatures. We can't get around it. And when we rationally object to the resurrection, we can't help in that moment in putting our hope in something else. You can see how we do this as a culture in the West, particularly here in America, <clears throat> where we use, uh, put our hopes as a society in things like science and technology to bring us a better future. We put our hopes in them to solve things like aging, disease, poverty, inequality, transform our society. But what a lot of people are starting to say now is that actually these things are destroying our privacy. They're dehumanizing us. They're fragmenting us as a country. That globally, they're only furthering our Western cultural imperialism that a lot of other societies would wish we would quit already. That our algorithm-driven search engines are actually furthering the racial inequality in our country. And you can see this validated even more by studies that are coming out now that show people in their 30s think their future will be worse than the future that their parents were looking forward to. Or, more simply than that, 
Just look at all the dystopian movies about our future coming out and making money right now. Now, the problem isn't science and technology. Those are good things. The problem is, as a culture, we're putting all of our hopes in that basket, and they are failing under the weight. But maybe it's far more simpler than that for you. Maybe it's not this cultural thing. Maybe in light of your rational objections, you put your hope in something a little more personal than that. Your bank account, your family, your spouse, your career, all good things, but things that at some point will come to an end and pass by. And it's not just rational objections that we see here. We also see some religious objections. In verse 25, Paul says, no, no, I'm not insane, Festus. What I'm saying is not only true, but it's reasonable. He says, the king's familiar with these things, and I can speak freely to him. I am convinced that none of this has escaped his notice because none of it was done in a corner. And then Paul looks at King Agrippa, the judge, and he says, do you believe the prophets? I know you do. I... Can you, I mean, just imagine the scene here for a second. King Agrippa, who oversees the temple, who, as Paul says earlier, is an expert in all the Jewish customs here. Paul, the man in chains, completely flips the entire room around, and suddenly the defendant has put the judge on trial. He points back to the evidence that he's shown Agrippa in Paul's words, or in uh, Ezekiel's words, and he says, do you believe the prophets? Because if you do... You've got to see something and what I'm talking about with Jesus here. And Agrippa is caught in that moment. He feels the heat of the crowd looking around him and he changes the subject, but in his own way stating his objections to what Paul's saying. And you see, just like Agrippa, we can all have our own religious objections to the resurrection too. I think in this passage, um, we can see two ways in particular that we can unknowingly, as Christians, object to the hope of the resurrection in our lives. First, in our fight against sin. Look back up with me at verse 18. Paul says there that he was sent by Jesus to the Jews and to the Gentiles to open their eyes, to turn them from darkness to light, from the power of Satan to the power of God. And this is exactly like something that was prophesied in a passage like Ezekiel 37, that the future blessings of forgiveness and the power of the Holy Spirit to transform us on the inside, to love and obey God, Paul is saying that it's all available now because of the resurrection. And so a sign that you and me are unknowingly objecting to the resurrection in our lives is when we've stopped fighting against sin because we think it's just pointless. It's never worked. Why keep trying? It just makes me feel more guilty and hate myself even more when I do. Why even keep it up anymore? And what Paul is saying here, though, is no, 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 the resurrection is a sign that through your faith in Christ, you've been delivered from darkness to light. You have been delivered from the power of Satan to the power of God. Or maybe you are fighting against sin, but you're doing it in your own strength. Your understanding of this part of the Christian life is, I got to buckle down. I got to get serious. 
I gotta work hard. The only way my life is gonna change, the only way my, the sin of my life is gonna change is purely through my sweat. And so we fight sin by our own strength instead of by the strength of the Holy Spirit that the risen Jesus, resurrected and ascended, gives us so that we can fight against that sin. So first place I think we can see it is in our fight against sin. Second place, though, is in our connection with each other. Keep looking at verse 18 there. Paul says that he was also sent to preach that we might receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are being sanctified by their faith in Jesus. You see, when Jesus rose from the dead, he resurrected as the representative of a new community that if you're a Christian today, you belong to. I mean, this is something like was prophesied in Ezekiel 37, that God's people would be united and given this new sense of belonging together. And yet a sign that maybe we are unknowingly objecting to the resurrection in our own lives is that we think we don't need community. We think we're completely fine, if not better, in our lives without it, that we are completely spiritually self-sufficient on our own. We don't need community. Or we want the community, but without the king. We want this deep, tight-knit community but one that's not centered on the resurrected Jesus who started this community in the first place. And in all of these, in all of these unknowing religious objections that you and I can both have to the resurrection, ultimately what we're doing is we're taking our hope and we're putting it in ourselves, which in the end doesn't really work. I mean, if you're like me, when you put your hope in yourself in your fight against sin, doesn't it make you a more prideful or angry Christian than everyone else around you who's not working as hard as you, or a more fearful and anxious Christian about where you really stand with God? When you put your hope in yourself and your connection with each other, doesn't it make you more cynical and paranoid of what everyone else around you thinks? Or don't you find out that it ends up just slowly eating away at your community that's not centered on Jesus because you don't have the ability in those moments to sacrifice for each other, forgive each other, serve each other? Because in the end, it's all about you. You see, in the end, our objections, whether rational or religious, they don't give us anything better. The misplaced hopes that we end up moving toward, whether cultural, personal, spiritual, they'll only fail us. What we need, what we need is the resurrection hope Paul's defending in this trial. So we've seen the testimony, the evidence, the objections, now the verdict. In verse 31, the two judges step out from the courtroom into their private chambers. And in verse 30, Luke says, the king rose and with him the governor and Bernice sitting with him. And after they had left the room, they began saying to one another, this man hasn't done anything that deserves death or imprisonment. And Agrippa said to Festus, he could have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar. In other words, what they say here is, even if they don't agree with what Paul is saying, they vindicate Paul here in this moment. 
Because ultimately, there's nothing in what Paul's preaching here in this resurrection message that was really on trial. There's nothing that's upsetting the Roman or the religious rule in that area. And so they have nothing they can do with him. And they set him on to his next spot in Rome. And it's through this spot here that Luke uses their verdict to vindicate the message that Paul has been sharing about Jesus' resurrection, which is really on trial. You see, remember, Luke, he's writing this book to this man named Theophilus to give him confidence in what he's already heard about how God is fulfilling his plans to renew cultures and places and lives through Jesus. And the primary way that Luke does that in the book of Acts is by focusing on the resurrection, which through this sequence of five different trials, Luke shows being vindicated before both the religious and the skeptical people of that time, confirming even more for us that through Christ's resurrection as the first from the dead, the long-awaited future blessings of God are available now and anyone can get in on it. So how do we get this resurrection hope? Well, I'll close with this. Paul tells us in verse 20 how we get this. He says that he was sent to preach first to those in Damascus, then to those in Jerusalem, then to all in Judea and to all the Gentiles. I preach that they should repent and turn to God and demonstrate their repentance in their deeds. You see, this right here, this verse is the real reason the Jewish people wanted to kill Paul. Because what Paul is saying here is that the only way that any of us can get this resurrection hope is by grace. That the Jewish people were just as in need to repent and to receive God's grace to get this hope as the Gentiles. And so are we. You see, in the end, our misplaced hopes, which is putting our ultimate hope in anything else than Jesus, it's not just that they are impractical. It's not just that we can tease them out and say, you know, they, they just don't really work. Ultimately, they're enslaving. Because any other hope than the resurrection of Christ is one that you have to earn. Meaning that you will spend the rest of your life stuck on this lifelong hamster wheel trying to do enough to keep this hope alive. And it's not only just that they're enslaving. It's this misplaced hope that keeps us from finding true resurrection hope in Christ because at their core, they're sin. Sin that puts us in odds with an infinitely holy God. But on the cross, Jesus died taking the punishment that we deserve because of our misplaced hopes. Experiencing in the darkness of that moment the depths of hopelessness that these things on their own lead to. Not because you deserved it, because of God's great love for you. And now, he has done all of that to free us into a new hope, a greater hope in the resurrection of Jesus as the first to rise from the dead, that now you can have hope in your sin, in your loneliness, in your depression, in your future, in your marriage, in your parenting, signaled in the resurrection and secured in the cross that is unlike any other hope 
Because it's as Paul says in verse 18, it's only in Christianity that you have a hope that is yours, not because of merit, but because of mercy. A hope that we now will get to experience together in the Lord's Supper. We're going to spend some time for the rest of our service singing songs, praying. There'll be a prayer team in the back corners who'd love to pray with you about anything you need prayer for. And most of all, we're going to spend some time experiencing this hope of the gospel in the Lord's Supper together. The Apostle Paul, uh, later on in the Bible, describes the meal we're about to partake in this way. He says, For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you, The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. You know, kids, you might wonder why it is that we have the Lord's Supper together every week. You see, when we come forward, when your parents come forward, maybe when you come forward and you take the bread and you dip it in the juice and you eat it together, we are remembering Jesus' death on the cross for our sins, for our misplaced hopes. And it's in that moment that we do this that the Holy Spirit works inside of us through what looks like just ordinary bread and juice in extraordinary ways to help you believe the gospel hope even more in your life, that God is forgiving, transforming, uniting, and living with his people through their faith in him forever. In other words, kids, this is something that we do not for God, This isn't something we do for our parents. This isn't something we do for God. This is ultimately something God is doing for us. Using this meal to spiritually strengthen your faith in the hope of the gospel that was secured in the cross and signaled in the resurrection that we'll one day see face to face when you're resurrected with Jesus too. This is a meal for people who have placed their faith in Christ who their only hope in life is Jesus. And so if that's not you this morning, parents, if your kids haven't come to that place yet this morning, we would ask that you wouldn't partake of the elements, but instead use this as an opportunity to explain to your kids what this meal is pointing them to, the hope of the gospel that can be theirs through Jesus. But if that is you this morning, if even it feels like it's hanging on by a thread, you know that the hope you need is in Jesus. There'll be servers on either side in a moment. Please come forward and experience the sustaining grace of God in this meal. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the word that you've given us here in this passage in the book of Acts. That the hope of all humanity and the resurrection of Jesus as the first to rise from the dead as the sign that your future end-of-time blessings have broken into our world right now is on offer to anyone. 
that by grace, through faith in your risen son Jesus, forgiveness, belonging, transformation, and life with you, anyone can get in on it. Father, we pray that through the rest of this service and most of all in this meal, that you would use it to press even deeper into our hearts the hope of the resurrection, strengthening our weak faith through this meal until one day we see that hope face to face when we are resurrected with him. Amen.